Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. If you're interested in growing your revenues online and you're tired of ho-hum agency work, then it might be time to check out Single Grain. Single Grain is a digital marketing agency ran by yours truly that has helped venture-backed startups to Fortune 500 companies grow their revenues online. Check out Single Grain at www.singlegrain.com grow to get a free resource on eight marketing campaigns that we've used to help companies grow their revenues online, including the one that drove over 1,500% return on investment. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's edition of Growth Everywhere, where we interview entrepreneurs and bring you business and personal growth tips. Today we have John Levesay from Craftsy, which teaches you how to learn creative skills online. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Eric. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. So the way we usually like to start these off is to hear a little more about your background and how you got to where you are. Sure. Um, so I don't know how far you want me to go back, but it, you know, I, I started uh, my career uh, in manufacturing, actually, in finance and accounting at, at General Electric. Um, and spent about six years there. Uh, got an MBA from University of Michigan. Went into banking for two years, and then I spent about you know, kind of at the advent of the uh, internet, I spent about a little over six years at eBay from '99 to around 2006. Um, and at eBay, kind of saw firsthand the power of what are perceived to be niche communities, just, you know, the level of avidity and spend in, in a lot of categories that, that people don't necessarily uh, think about um, as being as big as they are, as well as the power of, of kind of community uh, around commerce. Um, came out to Colorado in 2008. Um, Worked for a while at an IAC-owned company here, and then in 2010, um, some former eBay colleagues and, and a couple engineers that we had met out here uh, started Craftsy in 2010. So yeah, and the idea behind Craftsy was 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 fundamentally that the promise of online education was largely being was largely unfulfilled in the market both from a technology um, and a production perspective. Uh, the, the, what, what passed for online education was often a PowerPoint with a voiceover or a kind of dodgy camera from the back of the classroom. And it, it was really a second class experience to being, to being uh, in a live classroom. So the, what we endeavored to do was build a platform that captured the magic of a live classroom, which is the interaction between fellow students as well as the instructor, but also provided you know, the ability to asynchronously consume content. So you didn't have to be uh, you know, online at a given time. You could consume the content anytime, anywhere. Um, and so we spent the first... You know, portion of the, of the, you know, the early days of the company building this platform. And so it's, it's right now, um, we think it's the best in class as far as, um, online learning. And it, it allows you to, as I said, watch it 
watch the content anytime, anywhere. Um, but if you're at two minutes, 32 seconds into lesson two and you have a question, you can ask it. Uh, the instructors um, that we have teaching classes participate on an ongoing basis. So they will answer your question. But the, the cool thing is when they answer that question, the Q&A resides at two minutes, 32 seconds uh, next to the video. So all subsequent people who watch that class uh, can see that Q&A and jump in. And you get this really vibrant um, kind of intra-class discussion between fellow students and instructors. Um, that's the platform. On the content side, what, what we wanted to do was we, we never wanted to democratize uh, the supply side of the equation. A lot of companies out there, and some of them doing it quite well, have, have kind of had this notion of if you build a platform, um, the teachers will come. And you know, we feel like in, in each vertical category that, that we're in, there are people who are uniquely positioned to be the best instructors in the world. So we wanted to bring those instructors in to our studios here in Denver and, and film them and then democratize access to the best instructors in the world. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how we got going. Cool. You know, 2010, and I, I know your growth has been phenomenal in the last four years or so. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, revenues and number of users today? Sure. Um, you know, we launched the platform, you know, live in December of 2010. So, you know, we were only six months in. So de minimis revenue in 2010. 2011, we did about two and a half million in revenue. 2012, about 12 and a half. 2013, uh, we did a little over 24 million in revenue, and uh, the growth continues to be very strong. Similar growth in 2014. Got it. And we just hit we just hit five million registered users from uh, from 180 different countries. So there's people, you know, um, I think someone enrolls in a craftsy class every 18 seconds of every day. Got it. And would you say your user base is pre, you know predominantly uh, female versus male? Yeah, so it, it, it's starting to skew um, the the mix. The gender mix is starting to change a little uh, with the introduction of some new categories. But our, our core categories that we launched with were quilting, knitting, sewing, and cake decorating. And so in in those categories. Um, you're probably 90% female, about 80% of those over 40, um, which is an extremely under, uh, under-addressed market, both by venture dollars as well as technology. And so um, we, we really love the market. It has the critical components of passion, time, and money. And uh, to, to kind of uh, engage in ongoing education and these are these are big markets. Um, quilting alone is a is a three and a half billion dollar uh, domestic industry annually. So we started there, and it was skewed as you would, as you might guess, uh, predominantly female. Um, subsequently, we've introduced cooking, art, photography, which which skew a little more gender neutral. Um, and then we've just launched gardening uh, and woodworking which actually are woodworking in particular is predominantly male. So 
Yeah, we're seeing the mix change, and it, it differs on a category-by-category category basis. I'm, I'm personally interested in getting into gardening, so I have to check some of those out. Um, okay, so, you know, obviously, you know, you have all these smart people. You're in Colorado right now. You have all these cool engineers. You have you, lots of experience, right? How do you go about finding all the talent for these world-class teachers that know how to teach quilting, you know, sewing, and all these different uh, courses? Sure. So, you know, Denver is a, is a pretty unique city in, in as far as – you know, on the talent side. So, you know, one of the reasons I moved here from the, I was in the Bay area for 10 years. Um, and I, I, you know, just personal, but got married, started having kids and you start doing the math about commute time, about housing costs, about overall cost of living. Um, and Denver's a, a great city. And, and it, so we, my wife and I made the decision to move here. Um, and the tech community is really growing. So we've had, um, we, we have some really strong engineering team, um, great production. You know, we, we produce all our own content. So we have about a 70-person production team that is, is producing premium original content. Uh, a lot of L.A. and New York refugees here in Denver um, and a lot of talent here on the production side. Um, as we, as we pull that together, to answer your question directly, how do we find, uh, you know, if we want to make a class on Italian pasta and mother sauces, how do we, how do we find uh, not only the, the best cook of that in the world, but we want to find the best teacher. So um, we, we have a whole team dedicated to talent acquisition and content development, and they will they will look at the best-selling cookbooks, uh, best people on TV, the best teachers at culinary academies, the best um, teachers at cooking shows, um, and some people who've never really gotten their chance to get publicly exposed but are just great teachers. And we screen test them. It's a pretty rigorous process of making sure that they are going to be not only really strong on content but also can deliver it in a way that that engages students um, and that is essentially edutainment. Um, these classes, this is fun stuff, and people should enjoy it. Got it. So this whole this whole training process it sounds pretty pretty rigorous. Can you kind of dive into a, a little more detail on how it works? Uh, so on the 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 acquisition process of instructors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, you know, typically our this is educational content, so it's, it's different than TV. Um, there's a lot of TV programming around, say, for example, cooking. Um, oftentimes, the content is essentially a reality TV show that happens to involve food, um, or, or it's very uh, inspirational, um, where they kind of, you know, they talk about what they're going to do, and then they just pull it out. And we, we show step-by-step step, um, how here's the 20 mistakes you're going to make doing this uh, given technique, whether it's art or quilting or photography. And so we have, we have another team, you know, that once uh, we've acquired great instructors and worked with them on topic, we have another team often composed of people who used to be college professors who, who will work with, with the instructor to kind of right size the content and design learning outcomes um, that will be that will be great for the students, and so um, th that's a process that happens long before the camera ever goes on. We don't script classes 
but we definitely block lessons out so that there's a coherent learning arc and that people really will, will, will learn from the classes. Got it. Okay. So, you know, backtracking a little bit, you know, you coming from a numbers type of background, you know, accounting, finance, and then going down the MBA route, which is what uh, you know, a lot of people or a lot of people I know have you know, done so far. How does someone get to like where you are? I guess, how does, how's, how, how have those experiences shaped you to like who you are today? Yeah. So interestingly, I was a history uh, and English double major in college. So I, I was not um, a quant out of the box. Um, I, I realized, though, that, that those were tools I needed um, to, to understand and eventually um, run a business. And so, you know, I, I never wanted to be an accountant or, 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 you know, in finance long term. But it was it's this balance of patience and impatience as you build your kind of market basket of skills is and it's advice I give to young people a lot. Um, when they're 22 and they want to uh, be in a startup, I'm like, you know what? Go work for someone else for four or five years. Build skills, whether it's writing, uh, quantitative analysis, finance, digital marketing. Um, be a sponge. Learn. And then when you're ready and, and you have a superpower, if you will, um, take that out and, and, and apply it on your own thing. Um, so, yeah, it's... I think a lot of, um, you know, I, I learned these skills and I also, I mean, I think there's a humility around starting a company where <clears throat> you've got to be confident to hire people that are better than you at, at other things. And so I, I, I'm not a inherently uh, creative person. Um, I, I appreciate creativity and I can recognize it, but I'm not a, a, a great visual designer or a video you know production expert but i found people who were uh, the same goes on the tech side so um, be confident enough to go out and find other folks who who, who and build a team of, of people who are who are great at what they do okay. and you know when you when you talk about finding people that are that are better than you i mean what are what's like one thing you do to kind of gauge if someone's actually better than you during like a hiring process sure i, I mean i think the the critical thing uh, is defining the role first. So look forward a year and say, you know, what is the, the mission statement, if you will, for this job? Where do we want to be in a year? Um, and what is it going to take for this role um, to get us there? Oftentimes, I think people, founders even, um, they're looking for a head of design or a head of marketing or a head of product. And they all have slightly different visions of what that person will do. Um, I think it's really important to get, to get alignment and get it down on, on what is the, the mission of the job, the specific goals, and what defines a win where you would look back a year later and say, wow, that was a great hire. But once you've defined the, the job and what you need out of it, um, Decide what kind of fishing ponds, if you will, for lack of a better word, where those people are. Um, you know, if it's if it's a more quantitative driven, perhaps you you you, you fish in ponds of, of ex analysts for, from Goldman or you know banking <laughs> programs or Bain. Um, you know, the consulting uh, kind of graduates, if you will. If it's creative side, 
you look elsewhere. And, and so define the job, define what success looks like for the job, then identify the pools of where those people are, and then aggressively um, go out and, and recruit them. And once you bring them in, um, I, I think, you know, there's, there's various techniques to kind of drill down and, and figure out, you know, are they in fact, um, resumes can be, the whole interview process is a crapshoot, right? There's a lot of really smart people who, who've learned to interview well, but, but actually aren't great. And there's a lot of people who, who are a little more raw, who don't interview particularly well, but are fantastic once they're in. So it, it, there's an art and science to it. Okay. And I guess this kind of segues over to, you know, hiring like uh, your company is really data driven, you know, hiring data analysts. And I think there's a growing need for, for these kinds of people. So how do you say, how do you go to someone at Goldman and say, hey, you know, come work at this startup and, you know, your salary is probably going to go down. But, hey, you know, why not? Right. Yeah, it's, it's, I think finding people who, who, who want to be part of something that is um, <clears throat> that is growing and that will will redefine an industry. I mean, one of our one of our top goals here is to create a company that uh, eventually uh, is part of the cultural lexicon of of where to go when you want to learn something. You know, uh, and you know, similar to to Google it or go to eBay. Like, I mean, if if someone said to you, "Gosh, I really want to learn gardening." Um, I, you know, I have this deck in San Francisco and I really want to get some nice stuff. You, you know, I want it reflexively to be, wow, go to Craftsy. They have some great classes on that. Same for photography or cooking or quilting. Um, and, and, and there's something uh, inherently, um, I think, fulfilling about being part of, at the early stages, a company that's ascending, uh, that has that kind of goals and building it. And so... Um, I think, you know, selling that, that dream to folks and, and, and showing that the, the team's in place to make it a reality, there, there's a profile of, 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 of uh, people who, who don't want to work for a large bank and kind of, for lack of better words, keep score. They, they want to score touchdowns. And so, um, you know, ideally we want heavily analytic people to come in learn the business and then move into an operating role and apply um, the, the, the great quantitative skills they've learned into, um, into a business decision, you know, role. Okay. And, and I think they're, they're great at that. Got it. Now, let's say if you're someone that's really raw, you're a startup founder, before product market fit stage, you have like 10 employees or so, and you know you need these data people uh, but and you know where to look, but you don't know what what type of questions to ask. I mean, what do you do in this scenario? And I'm sure a ton of startup founders are in this exact phase right now. Sure, um, <clears throat> I think there's a lot of a lot of great resources out there. Of you know, when we talk about finding someone who's better than you at something, it doesn't only have to be in the interview process. The, the, there's there's companies out there, and I, and I found the. You know the start, startup landscape to be um, incredibly generous with time and advice, and so find a company that does um, what you want to do very well, and 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 triangulate uh, the person there 
who and it, it may not be the, the CEO or, or the head of marketing. It may be their lead um, business analyst and go talk to them. What, what, what do you do on a daily basis? What are the skills that are important? How do you apply that? What tools do you use? Do you need to understand SQL? Do you write your own SQL code? Do you um, and really start to understand? This circles back to kind of defining the 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 mission and the goal and the role of the job. You know, it's easy to get seduced by we need a data data scientist or we need a quant. Well, what does that mean? Exactly. Got it. Okay, so let's dive a little bit into to, to user acquisition. You know, the, the question I always like to ask is, how did you acquire your first, let's say, hundred or one thousand users? Sure. Um, I think, I think, uh, you know, for us personally, it, it was trying to. I'll go back to the fishing pond analogy. Is is where are, uh, where are your customers currently? What what are the aggregation points? Um, of the most highly avid customer, where are they congregating currently? And so for us, we found Facebook um, to be an amazing acquisition channel. Um, there's a lot of companies that spend a lot of money on Facebook but don't really have a coherent uh, funnel to matriculate them into paying customers. Uh, we actually found Facebook to be a, a a very good channel. People self-identify um, with levels of avidity toward given topics, and we can then, um, uh, you know, introduce them to our products. Um, we also found uh, some more, you know, current aggregations, high traffic, low monetization um, pools of our customers on a category by category basis um, in areas. Uh, say, um, you know, there's there's quilting newsletters that go out that that don't have a real great monetization engine, and being very deliberate and very fair with with those um, sources to say we want to give you an opportunity to to make money uh, and monetize your customers, but we also want to be introduced to your customers. So uh, email, online email marketing was very successful in the early days for us as well. Okay. So when you talk about Facebook, are you talking more on the, on the ad side or are you talking more on just the social media management side of things, just like posting? Or is it both? It's both. So um, what we've specifically done is we've created um, vertical uh, enthusiast clubs on Facebook. So um, we have a drawing club. You know, and this goes everything from animation to uh, sketching. Uh, you know, so drawing is a big category, just like sports is a big category, right? I mean, mm-hmm. multiple genres within within drawing. Uh, but we built a, a drawing club um, on Facebook, and once and we have a million people in it now on Facebook in that club, um, and then treating it not like a. a treating it truly like a club and not like a ad platform in that we don't, um, we want people to engage. When you think about Facebook, um, the fundamental model is to reconnect with terrestrial friends. Um, And let's say you have 300 friends on Facebook. Only four of those 300 might be into photography. So, 
for you for to just continue to post all your um, all your 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 kind of uh, photos and techniques would probably bore the heck out of the other 296 friends you have. Yeah. Um, so how do you create a venue then for for you to be introduced to 200,000 people who 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 are into photography? And and so these clubs have been a great way. Once you have the clubs assembled, um, you give away a lot of content. You you you, you allow community um, to transpire organically and and kind of uh, deliberately, and and then uh, ultimately migrate folks to paying customers. Okay. You know, and, and through all the um, the typical you know tools of, of promoted posts and and custom audiences. And how big is one of you know these clubs that you have? You know what's what's the what's the size of the biggest one? I don't, there's a lot of them that come in kind of in similar range between three quarters of a million and a million people, but we have over eight million wow. people you know segregated across various clubs. Okay, you know when you start something like a club, and we'll just call it a community in this case. It, it always it's it's tough to kickstart. So you know what's what's one big thing you did to to kickstart? I know you talked about giving away content. Is there anything else that you guys did to kick it off? Yeah, I mean. You know, we obviously paid for likes, um, but 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 it's it's these are the, oh the, these live on Facebook. Yes, they live okay. on Facebook. Got it. Okay. And so, um, which you know, a lot of people try and build their own community. Mm-hmm. Um, Facebook's doing a pretty good job of that, and so <laughs> if if you can um, if you can leverage Facebook. Um, for what they're doing a great job of and kind of let the community live on there. Um, that, that's been our strategy to date. Um, once people join a class or buy a, a physical product from us, they come to our site and, 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 but, but we're, we're more than happy to see uh, folks interacting on Facebook. Um, yeah. Okay. And so there's, you know, there's another piece I saw with you and your your um, your chief operating officer talking about the difficulties of organizational growth. Can you talk about that? Sure. I mean, I I don't think there's there's, you know, if any company tells you that they went from four employees to over two hundred in a in a span of two years and didn't feel growing pains, they're they're probably either delusional or or lying. Um, it's a uh, it's hard. Uh, the human element is, is complicated. Um, you, you you end up, um, and I, I saw this at eBay, I've, I've seen it um, in multiple companies. Um, you, you get folks, maybe your 20th employee um, was fantastic for the first two and a half years. And they're a great individual contributor um, and even a good manager of a small team. But as you get to scale, um, oftentimes, you, you're first-time managers, um, and and you need to either uh, train um, folks on how to manage and, and and how to to change their role definition of their job, and and it's a tough transition for for it's been for me in my career at times, and it's been for it is for other people. Um, a lot of folks are fantastic doers. Um, they're, they're, they're all stars at, at what they do, but they're not necessarily great at, at running a 10 person team and motivating and leading. And there's a, 
there's a fi- there's a fine line between being a good manager and being a good leader. And um, you know, I think it just anytime you grow quickly, particularly at that inflection point where you have more new people than you do people who've been there a year, the, it puts it puts stress both on the company from a cultural perspective uh, as well as a productivity perspective and complexity creeps into the business where processes that worked uh, in year two at scale in year four uh, don't work as well. And you've got to uh, empower people to kind of continuously improve and innovate and and scrap processes and refactor the organization. And oftentimes um, that's difficult for people. Got it. And can you give me an example of you know how you had to deal with this? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I guess um, you know our, our you know a good example is kind of the production process. You know, in our early days, we were filming um, you know five classes to six classes a quarter, so kind of one class every two weeks, and you had a very um, compact team kind of taking that course from instructor acquisition to content development to filming to editing to the class going live. And, and it was four or five people who were all on the same team and could, could bring that product to bear. Now we're producing over 100 classes a quarter. So wow. it's much more complicated from a data management, from a logistics perspective, and, and the the kind of profile of, of employee to manage that. Some people are, are, are built like psychologically to be in very small companies. They flourish on small teams. And then when you begin to get escape velocity or scale, um, they're like, wow, this is a big company and there's processes in place and there's hierarchy and this isn't what I signed up for. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Um, you know, we I you know, constantly talk to the company about. Um, you know, we all eventually um, run out of road <laughs> as far as um, you know where your happiness thresholds are, what kind of org you want to be in. Um, but we've we've signed up to build um, a big company, and that's where we're going. And so. Um, you know, there's there's cases where where in all in all startups where the person that was the perfect person um, for the first two or three years isn't the perfect person um, at, at four years, and, and having the kind of courage of conviction to either train that person to be ready to evolve, move to a different role, and and, and expand themselves differently. Or, or potentially, it's just it's just not a fit anymore, and, and that's hard uh, because you people become your friends, and, and they've given blood, sweat, and tears for for years during the early period, and, and having the the kind of discipline to to um, to kind of refactor your organization is 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 difficult. Yeah, and you know, in, in those situations when you have to let someone go that's been an all star for three to four years, you know, do you give them any type of severance package? Is, is has that been the experience in the past? How does that work? Yeah, and 
And when I say let somebody go, it, it's, it's not always, um, it should never be a surprise to somebody. Um, you know, it, it seemed like a big company thing to do, but we have, we have quarterly um, reviews and, 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 and weekly one-on-ones with employees. You, you should always know where you stand, where your development needs are, where you're doing a great job. And, and oftentimes, it, 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 no one gets let go where it's a, it's a big surprise. <laughs> um, they've decided, or the org's decided, um, that it just wasn't a great fit, but that's been communicated over time. And oftentimes, we've had folks say, you know what, I, I, was, I loved doing this job. I don't love managing a big team. I kind of want to go back and just do that job. And that's okay. And I, that's great. And so, um, you know, really um, having iterative communication, providing a path for development, whatever that may be. Um, a lot of people really don't want to go into management, and that's okay. So, does that make sense? Totally makes sense. Thanks for that. Uh, so, you know, you talked about, you know, you started, you know, with, with the processes of having to, you know, scale up from like one video all the way up to like a hundred videos. Um, can you tell us about any, any other big struggle you faced while growing the business? Yeah. I mean, I, I think at various stages of a startup, um, you attract a different profile of employee, um, from a, from a, oftentimes, uh, the, the folks who the resumes you see two or three years in are very different than the resumes you see um, in the first six months. Um, there's a profile um, of, of person who wants to go to a six person startup. And then there's a profile of person. Let's go back to the Goldman example, someone who's extremely uh, perhaps risk averse very analytical, they, they can look at, huh, there's a six-person startup that's recruiting me. There's a 90% chance that's not there in two years. That is not what I want to do at age 27. Um, it's why I think the, the startup game is, is great when you're really young and you don't have anything to lose, or you've worked for 20 years and you've actually got a fallback both from a resume perspective and a financial perspective, where it's very difficult is someone who's, say, 32, has a mortgage and just had their first kid. Like, the risk of going to a six-person startup there um, is, is big. And so um, I, I think extending that to answer your question directly, oftentimes folks who come in three years in who were much less risk, you know, much more risk averse. Um, they can come into a company and be like, wow, this company's got 200 people and they've raised a bunch of money and things seem to be going pretty well here. Um, and that's where you need to be careful about complacency mm. where people, there's this assumption that you've made it and that, that people can, um, can kind of, I did my X hours and, you know, and that comes down to interviewing folks who are intrinsically motivated and really want to, they see the larger vision 
and they realize that there's a, still a big hill to climb and there has to be urgency and there has to be constant innovation and dealing with amb- ambiguity. Got it. So you're, you're looking for people that are, you know, there, there's always a next level type of mentality. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. So in terms of what, you know, Craftsy, I mean, you guys are doing all this cool stuff right now. I mean, what, what do you guys, you know, what, what are the big plans for the future? What's next for Craftsy? Sure. I mean, I think it's always a, it's a, it's a really good question for, for, for a startup that's gained traction. Um, do, do you um, stay in kind of what's worked and get better at it and grow that? Or do you start to plant flags in other categories or business lines? Um, and that's a constant, um, it's a constant strategic dilemma. Um, I, I've seen a lot of companies that, that whether because of hubris or, or recklessness, um, ha, have said, well, wow, we, we nailed this. We're, we're just a tad smarter than everybody else. And so we're going to start doing these four other, uh, business lines that, um, may not work, but take a ton of time, like all the, and then suddenly you find yourself focusing on these new initiatives and, and you, you rot from within on, on the core on what got you there. Um, so I, I think for us, um, you know, we have a core group of, of categories um, that, that are performing very well, um, have huge customer satisfaction and repeat purchase. And so job one is to kind of continue to grow the core. And, and do what we've been doing, um, continue to get better, continue to provide better product to our, to our customers. Um, and we also have, have a, you know, now a growing uh, physical products business. Nice. So things that, that go along with the classes. And when you learn skills and you want to apply those skills, um, that you can buy fabric or yarn directly from us. And that's been a, it's a great business and it's growing, um, growing nicely. So continue to focus on the core. Um, we're in 16 categories now, um, really get a, a market position in those 16 categories. That's, that's strong. Um, continue to grow the physical products business. Um, and then there's the, you know, the notion of international. We have, you know, 30% of our customers are from outside the United States. And so how do we explore um, potentially producing in foreign language um, and, and kind of marketing outside the U.S.? Those are things that are, are all um, kind of on the roadmap. Got it. Cool. Potential. Sounds, sounds like there's a lot of room for growth and exciting yeah. times for you guys. Uh, final few questions from my side. Um, was there at any point in time where the company was on the brink of failure? Um, I, I, I think we all are always, um, you, you can make bad decisions that can get you in trouble really quickly um, from a strategic uh, resources and where you plant flags. We, we, we had some, you know, as every startup does, this is not unique to us. Some some inflection points early on. You know, we we had some fundamental questions early on that needed to be answered for us and for investors. Which is, 
Can we build a best-in-class education platform? Can we produce high-quality content? And will people pay for it? <laughs> and if you check those three boxes, you've got a business. And, you know, early on, um, you know, you launch the site, you have content up there, and then there's crickets. And so, um, yeah, that's nerve-wracking. Um, and so early on, it didn't explode. Um, and, and you've got you've to continuously uh, think about kind of your go-to-market strategy, um, balance your cost of acquisition. You don't know what LTV is for a customer early on. So how much is too much to spend? And, and I think one of the advantages we've had um, is that Josh Scott, who's one of my co-founders, um, former eBay colleague, who's the COO, um, Todd Tobin, who's the CTO, and Brett Hanna, who's the VP of engineering. Um, we've all, we've all, we all worked for, you know, this wasn't our first job. Um, some of us have worked for 12 years, some for 20. And so um, making, making sound uh, data-driven bets that were not reckless, having a coherent, uh, product roadmap and, and strategy um, and sticking to it and not getting distracted. Um, one of the key things we do is every quarter, we not only have our, our kind of you know, OKRs or KPIs or however people determine it, but we also make a list of here are the things we're not going to work on this quarter. And, and getting that on paper and, and, and calling it out specifically that, yep, Ultimately, this is a great thing for us to work on, and it's something we want to do. We're not doing it in, in Q3 and Q4. Forces discipline um, to kind of focus on what you are going to do and, and ultimately leads to better results and, and frankly, mitigates some of those, um, the uh-oh moments where things are, are going really poorly. And a lot of it, Eric, is luck. I mean... It's it's always curious to me when when founders um, who who've had a successful company um, reflect on all their great decisions. Uh, sometimes it's it's a moment in time. Um, it's a confluence of, of technology and social zeitgeist that kind of um, when the time's right, the time's right, and being there and executing. Um, it bears fruit, but you know, we're, we're no smarter than than half the startups that that fail. We just we've executed well, and we were in a good market at a good time. I love it. All right, and what's one piece of advice you'd give to your twenty five year old self? Um, that's a good gosh. I probably could go on for three hours on that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I think in retrospect, looking back, um, you know, as as I as I talked about the notion of, you know, I think every twenty two year old wants to be a startup founder right now, just like every twenty two year old would like to be an NBA all star, but LeBron James and Mark Zuckerberg are once in a generation. Um, individuals. Um, so 
what I talked about earlier was go work for someone else for, for the early part of your career and, and learn something and gain a superpower. I think if I'd given advice to my 25-year-old self, I would have said, you were actually ready when you were 32 um, to go out, but I was still being very deliberate and picking up, oh, I worked in marketing here, I worked in strategy here, I worked in finance. You don't have to know it all. You, 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 you need a superpower, you need energy, and, but you need to have the courage to go out and do it. So if I would have given advice to myself then, I, I probably would have uh, started companies. You know, when we started this, I, you know, as a founder being in the 40 range age-wise, it's actually a little old um, for, for a lot of founders. Um, I probably would have done it six or seven years earlier. Got it. Okay, cool. Final question from my side. What's one must-read book you'd recommend to the audience? Interesting question. Um, the, I, I, believe it or not, I don't read a lot of business books. Um, I think a lot of them can be, could be pamphlets. Um, the takeaways are, could be summarized in six or seven pages. When I'm away from work, I actually read fiction uh, or history. Throw it on out there. What's that? Throw, throw, out a, throw out a history book or a fiction book. Let's hear it. <laughs> Well, I'll, just to keep it in context, I'll throw out the last few business-related books I have read. Um, I think Ben Horowitz, Ben Horowitz's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, is good. Um, You're the 11th still, guy to say that on this show. Yeah, it, it's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think uh, with regard to hiring and building a team, there's a book called Who, um, which, which lays out kind of the goals, mission, and competencies, and has, has really helped us as an org um, as far as bringing the right people in. Um, yeah, those are the last few business books I've read that I, I thought were great. There's another book by Patrick Lencioni called The Advantage, which is about um, kind of culture mm -hmm. and, you know, not culture in the startup mythos foosball table culture, but how to, how to run a team, how to empower people, um, and how to facilitate communication. And, and I, 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 it was a, it was a pretty solid book. I, I, I enjoyed it. Got it. Well, you know, it's, it sounds like you do read a lot cause I haven't heard of who or the advantage. So I'm going to have to check those out. We'll link to this, um, you know, in the, in the blog post itself, but um, John, thanks so much for joining us, everyone. This is John Levesay from Craftsy, and hope to have you on the show again sometime soon. Anytime, Eric. Thank you very much. If you're interested in growing your revenues online and you're tired of ho-hum agency work, then it might be time to check out Single Grain. Single Grain is a digital marketing agency ran by yours truly that has helped venture-backed startups to Fortune 500 companies grow their revenues online. Check out Single Grain at www.singlegrain.com slash grow to get a free resource on eight marketing campaigns that we've used to help companies grow their revenues online, including the one that drove over 1,500% return on investment.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember to take action and continue growing.